but it's actually a lot of fun. So in all seriousness, um, my little stool's gone. One of these days, one of these days, there's a, there's, we're going to have a podium right here, fancy contraption to set stuff on, and it's going to be awesome. I'll be a real pastor then. <laughs> could do, could do. Okay, guys, um, welcome. If you're new or new-ish to church, special welcome to you. Uh, guys, I hope that, that we, Grace City, Portland, can be the kind of church family that uh, wherever you're coming from, whatever you believe or, or don't believe or have questions or objections about, this can be um, a place, um, a moment, and ultimately a church community where you can feel uh, comfortable to, to be yourself and to, to just meet God right where you're at. Uh, you will be challenged for sure along the way because this is how Jesus rolls. Um, and we're going to look to his word as our, our source of authority and, and transformation and hope. Uh, but wherever you're coming from, guys, thanks for being here. I hope that, uh, that your ex- expectations are exceeded. And, and I hope that as a church family, we can, we can be a part of that. Um, we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we call it a book. It's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest church leaders. He met Jesus in the most unexpected and spectacular way. Um, He was uh, anti-Jesus. He was extremely and violently uh, anti-Jesus in church until he met Jesus, who he had presumed dead. Turns out he wasn't. He was crucified, but he came back to life, and he arrested Jesus. The Apostle Paul on a dirt road as he was going to a little town called Damascus. And as the story goes, he became a a devout believer and follower of Jesus. So he didn't know what to do with himself other than to just tell the world the good news about what God had accomplished in Jesus. Um, That God had entered into creation and took the, the weight of all of the world's sin and even death itself onto himself died because of it, was buried, left it all in the ground, overcame sin and death, and came back and is alive today. He reigns as king of the universe and is still transforming lives. If you don't believe that, um, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. Either I am absolutely delusional or Jesus is absolutely real. Definitely one of the two. That's, I, I'm being dead serious. I believe that. Because uh, I don't know how else to explain the radical transformation that's taken and taking place in my life ever since deciding to um, entrust my life and eternity to Jesus. Okay. There's the gospel. First Corinthians. We've been studying this letter that Paul wrote to this ancient church in the Greek city of Corinth. They were a messy church. I've said that they were probably, arguably, the most unlikely church to have ever made it out of the first century. They had issues upon issues upon issues. And Paul writes this letter, which is largely a letter of correction. He's trying to help them navigate, like, what does it really actually look like to be followers of Jesus, to love like Jesus, to live in the light of forgiveness and God's grace? What does the fear of the Lord look like lived out as followers of Jesus? So he's trying to unpack all this, articulate all of this, and it's extremely helpful for us because guess what? Human beings really haven't changed, like, 
ever, as far as I can tell. We're just the same as we've always been. So we need help just as much as the church in Corinth. So that's why we're studying the book. If you brought a Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you need one, there's a few in the, the boxes in the aisles here. You're very welcome to grab one. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're actually going to finish the second half, or most of the second half of chapter 14. Uh, many of your Bibles have probably entitled this section, Orderly Worship. But before we jump right into it, I want to I I approach this from a very roundabout way. I think it's very important to extract the, the spirit, the principle of what Paul is wanting to say versus just, just jumping straight in and somehow, I don't know, getting a few rules to apply to our, our contemporary context. I think Paul, there's much, much more going on in this chapter. So I'm going to take a few minutes to set it up for us. Bear with me. Um, okay, let's back up to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul starts talking about spiritual gifts. The, Christ, the Christians in Corinth were really into power. They had obviously experienced uh, the presence of God, the transformative power of God, and they were, they were enamored with spiritual power. Um, in fact, so enamored that they, they began to sort of lose track of like what the point was, that really this was about Jesus and not about them learning a few like spiritual parlor tricks to entertain themselves when they get together. And so Paul begins to talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and then it, he sort of builds that up, and he ends chapter 12 by saying, but let me tell you about the most excellent Gift, the more excellent way, as he puts it. And then he begins to talk in, in rather poetic detail about the power of love. And he says, okay, you can do all of these other things. Miracles, prophecy, uh, tongues. You can give everything you own to the poor. You can even be a martyr. But unless your heart has been filled with the very love of God, You've actually lost the plot. You've missed the whole point. And so he talks about love. And then he jumps back in chapter 14. He talks about specifically tongues and prophecy, which I find very fascinating. Um, then in chapter 14, halfway through, he sort of concludes this long, ongoing thought about power, love, and spiritual gifts and he, he makes this concluding a statement. This is chapter 14, verse, I forgot my glasses, 20-something. I actually can't read it. And he says, and if we apply the gift of prophecy, then when those coming in from the outside observe what's going on, it says that the secrets of their hearts will be disclosed and they'll fall on their face and will worship God and declare that God is really among us. That's outstanding. That's, that's, that sounds like a phenomenal church service. Someone coming in like, eh, I don't really know about this whole Jesus thing. You guys seem a bit weird. Actually, I think you are delusional. And then all of a sudden, they encounter the very real, real presence of God. And they fall down and declare, God is truly among you. This is the secrets of their hearts are disclosed. So that's, that's phenomenal. That's, that's powerful. And here's what he says next. What then, brothers? 
patriarchal society. What then, brothers and sisters? So what are we to do with all of this? So given all of that, power, love, presence of God, awesome stuff. So what are we going to do? What are we meant to do with all that? What then, brothers? Now, we're not quite there yet. We're still roundabouting. Let me say this. Paul, the man who wrote this letter and planted this church in Corinth, started it. He's extremely educated. He's an intellectual giant. He speaks multiple languages. He's well-traveled. He can hold his own in the Athenian Areopagus. That is, he goes toe-to-toe with the, the, the Greek philosophical giants of that time. He's a tradesman. He's an academic. He's absolutely fearless. Just, just read a little bit of the book of Acts. And, and he's a deeply spiritual man. Now, I would even go so far as to say Paul was like the original mystic. Oh, my glasses. Thank you. Getting old. He's spiritual. He is deeply, profoundly spiritual. Um, Let's go to the next slide. Here's just the short list of the kind of things that the Apostle Paul says about life in the Spirit. He says, walk according to the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Put to death deeds of selfishness, carnal thinking by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Experience adoption into the family of God by the Spirit. Hope in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Be filled with the love that comes from the Spirit and be loved by the power of the Spirit. Paul is well in touch, in tune with the work of the Spirit. So for Paul, Christianity isn't just sort of like the the next level of Judaism. This is not just sort of like, oh, it's a cool religion. Judaism was a bit old, kind of boring, but yay, we have a new religion now. No. Paul had encountered the very real, immediate, and present reality of God, the Holy Spirit. And so when he's describing what life looks like as a follower of Jesus, it's far more than just religious or ethical or moral to-dos that we might check off. It is all of that on the most superficial level, but it's life lived in the spirit. So he's a very, very spiritual man. So what then, brothers and sisters? Okay, so I'm, kind of, I'm trying to build this case Where is Paul going next? He's exhorting the church in Corinth. He's talked about power and love, and he's he's well in tune with the Spirit. He He even commands the Corinthians, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. He is a spiritual man. Next slide, please. So what then, brothers? Here we go. When you come together... Each one has a hymn, sung a song, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. 
Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. Verse 28. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and keep to himself and to God. Don't be weird. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Like don't talk over each other. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Some of your translations um, might say order. Um, that word peace there is not, it's not, it's not shalom. It's more of a, a piece of, of organization or order, right order. Isn't that slightly odd? Is this what you would expect after these epic chapters, ramblings and, and discourse on like spiritual power and love and being led by the Spirit and, and the presence of God and transformation, etc., etc. And this is where he goes. This is like the, so therefore, given all of that, this is what I expect in the church. And it's this very practical like breakdown of instructions. Paul gets super practical. He says, look, in light of all of that power, here's what you want to, here's what you want to do. If you, want, if you want to really experience the power of God, then the context of the love of God in Christ, I, I need you to get a bit organized. Okay, I need you to think practically now. Because everything I've just described, it's not this like ethereal, cerebral, sort of abstract feeling that we're meant to sort of hope for when we get together. Half the time I think what we're feeling is actually just as much to do with adrenaline because that's just the nature of a crowd. I could just be brutally honest. Um, but he says, get, get organized. Let's think practically for a minute together. That's, that's how I read that. Now, again, you might say, oh, wait, hang on a second. Like, let's, aren't you just overlooking some of the actual details? I would argue that this is not a prescriptive text to be applied in our contemporary context today. By that I mean, what Paul is not doing is giving this like list of detailed instructions. Like, okay, this is exactly how it's meant to look. When you get together, if someone wants to pray in tongues, it has to be this, and only two or three. Not one, not four, but no, 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 no. That, that would be to, I think, devalue what the Spirit of God is actually saying to us in this letter. The principle here is that the power of God lived out is actually quite practical. Paul's edict to the church in Corinth is be practical, be organized, bring peace, bring order. So I've entitled my sermon this morning, this is Unlikely Church Part 22, Organized Spirituality, and the way we're going to look at this, 
five fallacies that are guaranteed to ruin your favorite church family. If in case any of you are here thinking, how can I bring down this church? I'm gonna give you five tips, five biblical tips. Let's just burn it down. Um, and we're, at, we're actually gonna start with fallacy number two. So just a little, little suspense for you. Actually, I was thinking about it this morning. I thought, no, 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 I think fallacy number one needs to go at the end. So let's go to the next slide. Let's, let's, let's think practically and see if we can't, um, yeah, let's see if we can't pinpoint some misconceptions or common fallacies that we actually see in the church when it comes to spirituality and the power of God. Fallacy number two, organic equals authentic. Have you ever found yourself in a setting, perhaps a church setting, where there's this, this kind of uh, unspoken assumption that the more, quote-unquote, organic, the more spontaneous, the more natural, the more off-the-cuff, the less prepared, the more authentic it actually is? Because God can only move in a purely spontaneous manner. Is kind of how the thinking will often go. And uh, I would argue that in light of what we just read, that's certainly not the case. In fact, Paul ends by saying that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And by that, he means if you feel, feel prompted by the spirit of God to speak words that are from the heart of God for building up, uh, ex- exhorting or consoling, we call that prophecy, as, as Paul describes it in the New Testament sense. If you feel compelled by the Spirit to prophesy, you have control over the words that will or will not come out of your mouth. Okay, that spirit of prophecy is subject to the will of the human being. It's not like your eyes flip back and you just kind of, like you start to, you know, like, I, I don't know what that is. And all of a sudden, like, you can't control it. I've been in church settings where, like, in a moment like this, someone just starts to, like, shout out in tongues. And, of course, the assumption is, like, oh, whoa, that's the Holy Spirit's moving. Like, it's super weird, and it just happened like that. Therefore, it it must be authentic. It must be real. It must be from the Spirit of God. And I would say no. 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 Just weird. <laughs> Not to say God doesn't move spontaneously, because we could, we could flip to many, many examples of God moving in quite spontaneous and unexpected ways. Absolutely. But the fallacy is that the more natural, organic it is, that it's more authentic, more genuine, and more of the Spirit of God. That, that's a fallacy, actually, and that's what Paul is addressing. Now, Go to, go to the next slide, please. The truth is that deeper spirituality actually equals greater commitment. So if we want to ask the question, well, what does authentic or truly deep spiritual ministry look like? I would argue it equals greater commitment. Um, you know, have you ever heard the expression, or perhaps have you ever even personally used the expression, of like, oh, I don't feel led 
by the Spirit. I don't, I don't feel led by God. I don't feel, I feel like God is leading me to do that. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, maybe someone's like giving you an opportunity to like give or to serve or to personally sacrifice for the betterment of the body of Christ. And you're like, mm, I'm going to pray about it. You don't really want to do it. And so like your way of justifying that is like, well, I don't really feel led to like serve in that way. You ever, you ever use that one? How many times do we see an example of Jesus using that kind of thinking in the Gospels? Once, actually. Yes, I researched it for us. One time, it's actually, it's, it comes up twice, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. It says that after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's the only example that we have of Jesus explicitly, in those terms, being led by the Spirit. That's the only time. Now, was he led by the Spirit? Absolutely. In all ways, in word and in deed, he was, he was perfectly in tune with his Father. He only said what he heard the Father saying. He only did what he saw the Father doing. Jesus was the quintessential Spirit-led human. He is our model and example for what it looks like to be led by the Spirit of God. But that sort of thinking that, can I be real, that lame excuse that sometimes we use, like, I don't feel led, that's, that's rubbish. That's, that's probably you just making an excuse and sticking some spiritual words to it so that you don't have to do what you don't feel like doing. That's what that is. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm somehow immune to this thinking. <laughs> Most of these fallacies, I'm aware of them because I've, I've committed them all many, many times. And, um, and I've, I've done my best to repent. Deeper spirituality equals greater commitment. This is true in marriage, this is true in family, this is true in your workplace, this is true in our friendships, this is true in the church. The, deep, the, the best example of the deepest form of spirituality that we find in the Bible is God's radical commitment in Jesus to endure the cross. He was led to do that. Let's go to the next one. You guys enjoying this? Okay, fallacy number three. Individual relationship is greater than communal fellowship. Now this, this is a tricky one, so bear with me. Individual relationship is greater than communal fellowship, or we could actually flip it around. You could say, same fallacy, communal fellowship is greater than individual relationship. Typically, depending upon what you're like, if you're an extrovert, if you're an introvert, kind of, you, you'll say things like, well, you know, do you really have to go to church on Sunday? Do you really have to do the big crowd thing to, to actually be saved and, and, and that whole thing? And the answer is obviously no, because you're not saved by church attendance. One is saved by grace through faith in Jesus, period, full stop. But what happens to us when we begin to receive the love of God. What happens is we begin to love like God. 
and therefore the individual versus communal dynamic within the body of Jesus become two non-mutually exclusive categories. That is, these are not things that you can separate out. You can't pick one or the other. You can't say, well, you know, it's really just about my private sort of intimate little connection with Jesus. And occasionally I'll mix with the other family members if I feel led. (laughs) No. Because when you begin to receive the love of God in Christ, you begin to love like God in Christ. And therefore, we need both. We need both. Which makes truth number three, love from God leads to love like God. I know some of you, I'll, I'll, I'll just use my wife as an example because I know for a fact she would not mind me saying this. She hates crowds. Remember, uh, what, about two months ago, we, we were doing 23 days of prayer, morning prayer, 6 a.m. Some of you remember me talking about that? 6 a.m., 23 days in a row. It was awesome. Um, so glad it's over. Um, but Shirley got to come along one morning. Jess, our kids' city uh, director, offered to, to come over and watch the kids like 5 a.m. or something. We left. We got here early. We got here, and immediately she pulled me aside, and she said, Simon, why did I come here? (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Um, She does not like crowds. She does not like crowds, especially at 6 a.m. in the morning. And so she found a quiet place, and she prayed, and she met with Jesus, and it was great. But guys, my point is, I realized that at least half of us in the room just really like don't get excited about coming to church in the morning because it's like it's the crowd and it's like just feels slightly contrived and everyone's like got their fake smile on and and you know that whole thing um which actually isn't true some of us are just genuinely excited to be here like that is a real thing um I don't care what our culture says like there is such thing as like genuine joy and like um But it actually doesn't really matter how you feel about it because there's people here that need to be loved like Jesus has loved you. And so we gather so that we can be family, so that we can minister to each other, so that we can be challenged to grow, to learn patience, to learn compassion, to think well of one another, to bear with one another in grace in humility and patience. You don't learn to do that when it's just you and JC on your computer listening to your podcast. I listen to podcasts all the time. I do not grow in love in front of my computer. It happens here in the communal fellowship. I get it one-to-one, and then I share it when the family comes together. Fallacy number four. Two or more equals church. How about this one? So where, you guys have heard this. Everyone's heard this. Whether you're a Christian or not, we've all, have you, have you never, raise your hand if you, if you have no idea. But like, what is this? What is this two or more? Where does this come from? We've all heard this. It's Matthew 18. It's in the context of Jesus talking about when, 
when, when two followers of Jesus, have, one has sinned against the other, and he's talking about how to reconcile. He's talking about when I sinned against Marcos, and now Marcos is like, look, Simon, you, you done messed up. I'm trying to forgive you, but you need to repent, and so we're trying to work that out. That's the context. Basically, one brother sinning against another, and Jesus talking about sort of protocol for repentance. And they say, you know, come to your brother first. If he doesn't listen to you, get a few other people from the church. If he still doesn't listen, bring it before the entire church. It's, it's, it's kind of extreme. Like, we would never do that in today's context. Um, I think we should, actually. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> That's the context of two or three. And then he ends by saying, therefore, where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am with them. It's actually more to do with unity within the church as opposed to like, well, you know, if just two or three people get together, they throw up a prayer, like, bam, church. Like, no, no, that's not the context at all. Two or more. Here's an example of two or more. Leviticus 10. This, this, is, a, uh, this is a bizarre in, um, incident in the Old Testament. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. So Aaron was the, the priest. He was, so Moses was the prophet. Aaron was the priest. And he was overseeing all of the, the, the sacrificial service and the prayer in, in the tent of meeting where God's presence would manifest. Really, really big deal. He had a few sons, two of them, Adab and Abihu. What did I say? Yeah, Abihu. They had it in their heads. You know what? Why, why is it only they get to be the ones offering sacrifices to God? Why is it that they get like some sort of special right or privilege? So Leviticus 10 tells this disturbing story of these two brothers who say, forget it, we're gonna do our thing. We're gonna have like our little tent of meeting service. And it says that they take their, their uh, what do they call it? Their little things, they hold the incense in with the fire, their censers, and they put them in the fire and it says, out of the fire, strange fire came and consumed them. God judged them. He took their lives on the spot because they were doing their own thing. They're just simply doing their own thing. They say, you know, it's like, we'll, just, we'll just, just start our own little tribe, have our own little service, and I'll do my thing because I'm tired of doing Aaron's thing. I'm tired of Moses always being the one up front. What it really is, it's... The heart of it is an instance of rebellion. It's when you're a little bit tired of dealing with authority and instead of learning how to submit to leadership, say, you know what, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'll serve God my way. I don't need authority. It's like a cuss word in our society. And so these two sons of the priest offer this strange fire and God kills them on the spot. This is so incredibly extreme and disturbing and necessary for us to think about. What does this say about headship, 
um, leadership and godly authority in the church of God. This says that God is quite serious about the responsibility of leadership, i.e. delegated authority in his church. And that when God's kids get, it, get this attitude that I'm just gonna do my own thing because I don't really, I don't like authority, that's a very, very serious sin in God's eyes. I was at um, one of my seminary classes a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the, the young men in there, he started chatting with me on one of the breaks, and uh, he, he said, oh, you, you're a church planter. You planted a church. That's awesome. Like, I, I've thought about doing that many times. And I said, that's great. That's phenomenal. Why do you want to do that? And he said, well, you know, I, honestly, I've been a part of this church for a little while back home, and I just, I really don't like kind of how the pastor does things. And so I thought maybe, maybe I'll plant my own church. And he was very, he said it like very humble. It was kind of like, well, you know, I got this idiot pastor. And like, I don't know, like I just, I reckon I'll, I'll do a much better job than him. But there was that hint of like, I don't, I don't like the leadership that's currently been placed over the church that I'm part of, so I'm going to branch off and do my own thing. Guys, the reason why that is such a serious sin, because the body of Christ suffers for it. The, the body of Jesus, the church, is already radically fractured. We are so not unified, it's, it's become an epidemic. Now, the irony is that actually individuality, I would argue, is in fact a Christian value. It's a Christian value. And if you want to go back to like, you know, third, fourth century and read up on the doctrine of the Trinity or the evolution of the doctrine of the Trinity... One of the words that comes out of some of the language that's developed, particularly by, by Irenaeus, a fourth century theologian and church father, is the word that we now translate in English to person. Person. Thousand, two thousand years ago, there was no such concept in society as individual personhood. I was the son of my father. I was a servant of my Lord. I was but I was never just a person. If I was, it was because I was somehow uh, in a position of authority or royalty. But a slave, no, 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 no. You would never ascribe personhood to a slave. You would never ascribe personhood to a woman or a child. They weren't persons. They were something that I owned. And then along comes Jesus. Then along comes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we realize that God himself demonstrates personhood in his own community. This, this, is, the, this is the very core of, of what we believe. 
Trinity, the community and personhood of God Almighty. So it's good that we see ourselves and express ourselves and honor one another as individuals. But we must never make the mistake of simply doing our own thing. Leadership is from God. Now, it's a really scary thought because I've seen leaders, thank you, I've seen leaders be brought down. You know how the Bible says, pray for your leaders? Please pray for me. You know why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner who's been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I'm 42 years old. I've been a pastor since 2006. Not a super long time, but long enough to see men that I looked up to, leaders in my life, fall hard. And one of the biggest lessons that I've taken away from each one of those moments is that I am no better than that man. Who am I? But by the grace of God I go. So please pray for me because I'm so, so aware of how weak I am and how the temptation that I experience is no less real than the temptation you experience. So please um, honor me as your leader. If you want to be a part of this church, I would just humbly appeal to you. Please honor me as your leader. Please pray for me. Please help me to be a good leader. Please speak truth to me in love when you see me sinning or acting, acting arrogantly so that I can lead us in a way that we are a, an organized church and that our love is actually worked out in very practical ways. That as myself and the leaders that I'm submitted to, we have some other pastors who oversee our church plant here that I am absolutely submitted to. It's not just me. And as we pray together, as I, as I look to them for guidance and correction and encouragement, um, we're trusting the Holy Spirit to give us direction as a church. When we can all resist the temptation to do our own thing and submit to godly leadership, the church can begin to really act like the very body of Christ. Which brings us to our last and final fallacy. Oh, sorry, two more. Church discipline equals, I kind of already said this, equals abusive leadership. Um, This one's actually quite good. Anyone read Tim Keller? So he leads a church in New York City, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Excellent author. He wrote uh, The Reason for God, among like 100 other books. Uh, He says some very helpful things on church discipline, about four or four and a half years ago, he was asked by, um, some of you guys might remember that YouTube video that, that went viral called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus by a guy named Jefferson Betke. Yep. Yeah, you remember that? It's like 53 million views or something. So he asked Keller the question, what are the, in, in his estimation, what are the, the, the true marks of a biblical church? And he said three things. Number one, the true word of God is proclaimed. Number two, the sacraments are administered. And number three, church discipline is a real thing. Like sin is a big deal in the body of Christ. 
This is a place where we can actually talk honestly and humbly with one another about the sin that's destroying our lives. This can be a place where we confess our sins to one another and receive the grace of God. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be an understanding that we're allowed to talk about sin in the church. In fact, one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to not just be like, oh, it's okay. Your sin's not that big of a deal. No, it's to call you to repentance and say, God's word says this. If you're a follower of Jesus and your life isn't aligning with what God's word says about what a follower of Jesus does and lives and say, you need to repent, otherwise God himself will discipline you. And that is not pleasant at all. Very, very loving, but incredibly unpleasant. There needs to be consequences for our sin. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves, again, being judged by God himself because he is just that loving that he deals with us and the, and the sin that kills us and ultimately degrades the church. Truth number five, then, is godly discipline reflects the father heart of God because that's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines us like a father disciplines his son or daughter. This is the love of the father. And finally, fallacy number one, it's just church. I know, I'm, I'm pretty confident some of you are, because I'm looking at your face and I can tell you're like, oh gosh, this dude is, this dude is tripping. He's just way too serious. He's just, it's just church. Come on. Like, yeah, okay. I get it. I totally get it. But the truth is, it's the church. It's the church. We're meant to be the community that represents, in an earthly fashion, that represents the very character of God. We're meant to be the community, the spiritual family where people can come and unload the weight of their shame and sin that they're carrying around. You know, I was thinking about this this week. Where else in society can you go to unload the weight of sin and guilt in this world? I don't know, where do you go? I mean, there's ways to like escape it or suppress it or deny it. Um, but where do you go to unload the weight of it and experience forgiveness? Sometimes people, they need the church to be the ears of Jesus. Not, not a place where, hey, come here if you want to get judged for your sin. Yeah, that's what the world needs. No. I'll tell you what I need when I've fallen when I'm struggling with my sin, I need someone with an ear who can be the ear of Jesus, who can hear me confess my sin so that I can experience forgiveness afresh once again. The church is meant to be a place where people who are coming from broken families, who've experienced nothing but rejection and betrayal by leaders that they, they should have been able to trust, Broken family, broken marriage, lies. Where do they come? 
Well, for a lot of people, the church is meant to be a second chance at family, spiritual family where you can experience adoption into the family of God, where you can experience unconditional love, where you can experience what it feels like to be a son or daughter of God. And so sometimes people just need the church to be the hands of Jesus. And just we can just wrap our arms around them and say, welcome home. You're forgiven here. You belong here. You're one of us. And sometimes people need the church to be a place of hope. Where else are you going to go when death has become a reality? I'm sorry I got so uh, emotional this morning, but as a father, I, I, can't, I can't really cope well with the idea of an infant dying. I have, I have a couple of friends who have lost infant child, children. I'm convinced that the church is meant to be a place where people can come and experience real hope. Real hope. Because it's not just the church. It's the church. It's the church that Jesus started, the one that he died to build. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, God the Father put all things under, the, under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. We're meant to be a practical, organized, real demonstration of the very fullness of God in Christ. That's the church. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not just an idea, it's not just a feeling, it's not just a meeting, it's, it's reality to be worked on. It's a family to commit to, 